from that night, we just stayed on tour for three years and went mm. from clubs to theaters to arenas and within a year and a half. And so it was just the most incredible incendiary rise. That's when I was super famous. That's when yeah. I was Justin Bieber. I, <laughs> you know, I was Justin Bieber. This week's Walking the Dog is a bit of a special one because my guest is basically a rock legend. It's only Gavin Rossdale, the lead singer of multi-platinum selling band Bush, who was coming to me direct from his dog walk in Los Angeles. I know, we've gone international. Gavin was out for a morning stroll with his adorable Pomeranian Chewy, and we had a brilliant chat. He told me all about his rebellious teenage years in Northwest London, and he also chatted about what it felt like when his band Bush became this huge phenomenon in America. Gavin's a very hands-on dad to his three kids from his relationship with Gwen Stefani, and it turns out he's very hot on table manners. He also told me what it felt like to discover he had a daughter later in life, the model Daisy Lowe, who he obviously adores. I should tell you, by the way, that Bush have actually just released an album called The Kingdom, which is getting shown a lot of love by the music press, and I can see why. It's a total banger. It's what I call take on the world music. You can have that, Gavin, no charge. If you want to have a listen, The Kingdom is available via BMG on all your favourite music services. I really hope you enjoy our chat. If you do, please remember to rate, review and subscribe. Here's Gavin and Chewy. Gavin, you were just saying come. Was that to who I think it was to? Yes. Well, I thought the interview was starting proper, bona fide, so... Brought, brought my uh, my Rottweiler. Come on, hey, Chewy. <whistles> so yeah, we go around, we go around my garden, or as they say here, the yard. So I want you to introduce me officially to Chewy. I should actually say who I'm talking to because I'm so excited about this. I'm talking in LA to, I'm going to describe you as, I won't say rock god, I won't embarrass you, um, songwriter, singer, guitarist, and frontman of platinum-selling band Bush. I'm with Gavin Rossdale on Walking the Dog. Hi, Gavin. Hi there. How are you? And we're you're with your dog. You're in Los Angeles at the moment. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I'm with Los Angeles. I'm in Los Angeles at home here, and um, I have my trusted sidekick Chewy, oh. who is my, um, you know, little pride and joy. It's funny, I never really liked little dogs or never didn't really think about them. And uh, he's a rescue. Um, and um, I don't know, I really like him. He travels all around the world with me. Uh, he's small enough to take everywhere. And he's just, he's got so much personality for such a small head. I go, where do they, I mean, the brain can't even be that big. So where does the charisma, how does the charisma fit in there? I can't get it, but. Unbelievable. People have, people have said that about me, but you know, what can you, um, is, some, is he a Pomeranian, Chewy? Because I've seen pictures of him on your Instagram. I think. He is. He is. Uh, I, whenever anyone asks me, I'm always like, he's a pit bull and everyone does double take. But yes, he's a Pom, Pomeranian. And he's really cute. He's like a little miniature lion. And I just love it because he's just got this great personality and um, doesn't take too much uh, walking. My old dog, uh, Winston was a poolie, and that's a sheepdog. So those guys, you got to like walk forever, um, and that was a whole different uh, job. So this this guy, he just he just needs to kind of do his business and walk around and smell a few other dogs, and he's all good. 
He sounds like my dog because I have, um, mine's a Shih Tzu, he's called Raymond, and mm. people say he looks like Chewbacca. Although, you yeah. see, you are effectively your Han Solo, mm -hmm. aren't you? Because you're, um, you're the, Chewie <laughs> is your sidekick. Ah, I suppose, technically speaking, uh, you've got a point. I have. Um, I, I, had, want to... I, I didn't have enough imagination to, to go further, yeah. <laughs> I want to go back. What do you want? What do you want? Your history with <laughs> it's not the bailiffs. It's okay. You're doing all right, Kevin. Come on, you're doing well. Um, you, um, I want to go back to sandwiches for life. Yeah, <laughs> to your childhood because did you were you a dog family, Gavin? And I don't know if you know what I mean by that. But when I was growing up, I grew up in North London in quite a bohemian artsy family, and my parents didn't have dogs because I think they represented too much stability essentially. So I want to know if you grew up. Responsibility. Do you know what I mean? And I used to look at those people with a semi-detached house and a Volvo and a Labrador and dogs represented some sort of comfort or safety. Um, what was your attitude towards that notion of a dog family? And did you have dogs, your family, growing up? Um, yeah, there was one early on um, that I grew up with called Brandy. And that was a little poodle my mum had. I lived with my mum till I was 12. Mm. Um, uh, in my family and she left but so we had brandy and we went out it was I remember there was a Christmas and Christmas Eve and the dog ran out on the road and got hit by a car and killed on Christmas Eve it's like it's so traumatizing that I can't watch it's weird I can't I've kept thinking now if, if one of the animals got killed on Christmas Eve now oh. with my kids and how I like run Christmas I'd like want to shoot myself I'd be like you know what I mean we all we all judge ourselves by sort of the birthday parties we throw for our kids you know like how yeah. you know how, how happy are they on, on their birthday and um I don't know how we really recovered from that it must have been a really terrible Christmas after that you know it's, it's a interesting the degree of trauma and suffering is so directly intertwined with the degree of how interesting you are as an artist. It seems to really inform things that uh, you, you know, you just start, you inhabit areas of, that are the most challenging and therefore, you know, people at, at their lowest points and at their sort of uh, most intrinsically vulnerable mm. um, can relate. And like I've always had, like, all the people that like are band and everything like that definitely i definitely attract like the poets you know who sort of i yeah. meet people every day who sort of share their words and share their um or they say how the music gotten through something and it's never gotten old and it just it goes on forever i can't believe it there's so many people in the world it just happens you know i consider myself a working musician you know what i mean right. i don't really i kind of think of you know that's the kind of healthy healthy mm -hmm way to look at it and not trying to hang on to like fame and glory i mean i really love the glory and i do like playing <laughs> shows and all that stuff don't get me wrong what i mean is it doesn't like it doesn't govern everything that i do in in the yeah. sense that i look at people like uh you know in the mainstream and the really famous successful people and i just go that's really famous you know and uh so i i, I don't know i think that um that all those things so yeah my dog getting hit by a car on christmas eve really helped my career really made me more interesting <laughs> but do, I think it was the first what you said first about step the, to being interesting although i would say i mean i always think mm. you speak about this when i've heard you talk about it at any rate you seem quite um resilient and philosophical about it 
But, you know, I know your dad was a GP, wasn't he? And your mum yeah. was a model. Is that right? Or um... Yeah, she was early on. I think that, that uh, she'd given up by the time she had kids and um, she had a good few years. She came from Scotland, good, heavy Scottish accent. And then she kind of changed it beautifully into like the, the Queen's English. So she is a beautiful, glamorous lady. And... Um, um, but and did she leave? Like, did your parents divorce? And then why did she leave the family divorced. home? They 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 divorced. Yeah, they divorced. That happens. And she mm. moved. She moved away. So, so I never lived with her again. And um, then I grew up with my dad, which is also quite interesting and quite different. Growing up with a single parent workaholic, you know, mm. that's a different. That's a different. That gives a different set of things. And I had to do some interesting. Um, they asked me the other day, what's the best bit of advice? My dad, you know, you do these like daft video yeah, yeah. things. And like, what's the best thing you, what's the best advice your, your dad ever gave you? And I was thinking, oh, I was scratching my head. And I was like, my dad died two years ago. I was trying to like run and run over in my head, like the kind of times where I was down. He really like just put it all into place for me. Mm. And I realized that actually the best advice he gave me was no advice. He never gave me advice. Really? At all, just like let me just be bohemian and free from since I was twelve years old. Stay out wherever I want, do whatever I want. Never had to be accountable because I just was too much work for him. And, uh, and that's just me quite and him. unusual, for, given that he was a doctor. So obviously, you know, study and and academic discipline had obviously been a big part of his life. That that shows someone who's quite. He just had yeah. I think he, his life was more interesting than my development. And I was just too difficult and too uh, troubled and, and um, too much of a handful, like a firework. Like a, I was just really, uh, I don't know, was just, I think it was a lot of work. And he just figured out early on there was just no point. And his whole philosophy was just to let me be mm. and make the mistakes I was going to make. So I said, my best advice he ever gave me is he gave me no advice, but he did lead by example. He was really... Uh, kind to people. He was really quite a gentleman, and he was deathly funny, like really sharp, cutting wit that you know, very underhand. He's like like a sushi chef, you know, on people. And um, I, I think that's what. And he he somehow psychologically got me to a position where I just wanted him to like me, and so mm. I I never was that much of a jerk around him like that because. You know, if when we just look at you that one look, like, who, what, who are you? That you just be like, oh, you don't want to be that guy. You want to be like, wanting to say something funny to you, having a laugh. And, you know, yeah. so that but was You say, that was I really find that interesting because you've talked about, you're saying you were troubled, you were difficult. And I'm someone, and I only relate to that because my dad left when I was a similar age to you. And I was troubled and I was difficult. And it took me quite a number of years of therapy to connect that my dad leaving to possibly me being troubled and difficult um and i do you think that might have had an effect just in terms of your stability being rocked you know and just having that change in your life well i think what it made me do it was really intense was really grow up really fast where i was mm. so traumatized the first couple of years that you know i'd get like could you know like wouldn't go to school or like you know I'd be very depressed to go to school and I'd go to school, I'd fight all day. It's like, definitely like, something was not connecting. And then when I was 15, when, when I went to A-levels, that's when I became someone else. I could suddenly morph into this person that was called by my first name and 
I suddenly mm. discovered uh, English literature and books and smaller classes. There weren't 28 kids. And I was like, Rossdale, get out. You know, it's like, you're always in trouble. And, you know, I could like, suddenly I was a human being. And I yeah. went to dinner parties and, you know, smoke Gitan and like Red Marlboro and read Andre Gide and like, be an existentialist and like talk about the ennui and just lost in a raincoat, you know, yeah. raincoat and a packet of, of fags. And just trying to find myself. Um, in that way and so then I was a different kind of then I really tried to be studious and then once I was studious and really into that that side of it on literature level you know on literature reading that's when I was like I wanted to be a musician I wanted to write words and I was lost and you know Mr. Baudelaire is here and you know like here we go and so that's what I really liked was literary people then Patti Smith and Alan Ginsberg so you, and then Bukowski. You'd left because you went. You grew up in um, what estate agents would call Swiss Cottage, but you might call Kilburn. Yeah. I don't know which one you're going to go for. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I, I was pure Swiss Cottage um, right. off of the Fairfax Road, and my youth club was the Abbey Road. That was so. That was, uh, and then I, my first girlfriend lived on the off the Quex Road in in Kilburn. So my whole youth was spent between uh, Abbey Road Youth Club. Uh, Westminster Westminster boys we used to call them the Westies and we oh, were yeah? very intimidated by them because they were clever and it's kind of like for people that don't know I mean it's sort of the London Eton in a sense isn't it but all those boys there feel quite groomed well no I don't think so I think I, I wouldn't say that well more no creative I think it was, it was, and progressive well I no I think that no I, I, I it wasn't like for me it's funny because I'm so my life is so artistic, and yet I had nothing was developed there to do with that literature. Yeah, but no, in the sense that Eaton is just for like rich toffs, yes. you know, who aren't necessarily very smart, but they're going to be educated and go yes, to that right. system. You're the right. thing about Westminster that's a bit more, um, well, more interesting about it actually, it has no separate exam, so it's just Winchester and 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 Westminster ones, really high academic standard yes, you're right, where lots yeah. of kids like who those landed gentry couldn't even like you know get they i don't think they'd be able to get through so you do get really um i mean i hated it because you know where i grew up was really rough and all the kids were like i was surrounded by the, all the states and so it was like that was like the completely the other end of the scale which i think is really brilliant and now i'm really grateful for it because it just provided a completely different um sort of other side of my life you know and we've mm. we've all come to learn that um we're made up by all these different uh facets of our life um different components and fragments and uh, so that that with like my Abbey road youth club where it's full of like skinheads and, and future armed robbers <laughs> you go this is the most brilliant like you know, like I was like Zelig. I literally like Leonard Zelig. Mm. It's like that one minute I'm sitting and playing on a football team with like, you know, people that are like half of them are like in Pentonville and Brixton now. Mm. And then I go pop off to school and I'd be surrounded by sort of future judges and lawyers and sort of in city of industry people and probably really rich uh, hedge mm. funders. So you have all these kind of strands of life that, mm. that happen to you and uh, all goes into the melting pot of, uh, and then out the other side becomes virtual, you know. That's why I think it's so important as an artist, you know, you find your voice because no one's gonna be as, as, as interesting and as strung out as you are because you've got the story, you know. So if you stay close to your script, 
it's, it's such a wealth of information and different um different things that happened and uh, i i love all, all that thing i remember being away with all the abbey road so as the first three years of westminster i hated everyone you know the first day they, they make they make you well i just i was really inverted i was like what am i doing here they do this thing where they call you you the first year has to for the 50 of the eight of a year and you have to uh, make them toast and tea and take it into the 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 upper room and it's like a sort of little office or you know a little den like I'm fucking what? <laughs> so I remember there's my friend Shannon Peckham, his brother, who's like on the one of the rowers, really strong, told me to go and um, make him some toast. So I just walked up to him, just punched him right in the face. Just punched him in the face. Because I was in love with the Cray twins then, profession of violence. And I'd stay with my aunt uh, at between 12 and 14, lived in the Pepper Pot pub in East London. Oh, so every yeah, weekend okay. and every school holiday, I'd go and stay with my aunt. You know, I loved her. She was like, uh, she was everything to me. And um, so then I'd have like lock-ins at the pub with like East Londoners singing Streets of London and all the jelly deals and the Welks on Sunday morning and driving around with her boyfriend to all the other pubs around East London to sort of check the other pun- uh, pubs out. And um, so all these different lives coming together, uh, really rich tapestry like amazing yeah. amazing you know i'd go from from all gay east to my school uh was a really just long to westminster it was really easy and so it was brilliant and this seismic shift when i was 15 and i went away and i suddenly saw everyone for who they were what and do i you suddenly mean by was that? what i mean is i saw that everyone i was surrounded by bank robbers and armed robbers and mm. postmen and i was just like I didn't want to do this anymore. And I'd sort of spent three years being really aggressive to people in England, in uh, Westminster. So suddenly I found myself in the summer when I was 15, kind of going, oh shoot, who have I become? So mm. I, but I did find myself with, um, in books and in literature, that's when I become really studious. And I really yeah. tried hard. Yeah, it was a really fun time. I really liked it. I like, I just, I remember just having that one Mac and c- cigarette stinky fingers. <laughs> I would have seen you walking down a North London street and found you so intimidating. I know those you would have been... Because also, I want to mention the (laughs) elephant in the room. How I would describe you is someone who would be considered to be conventionally touched by the beauty stick. Um, You're not offended by that, are you? (laughs) Um, Wow, that's the most roundabout (laughs) touched. Brilliant, thank you. (laughs) So what I would say... It's a compliment at the end of it. It's like yeah. a, it's like a, it's like it's like a text about an email about a letter you're sending with a compliment inside it. I wonder what effect that has on you. You know, were you conscious as a young man? Did you look in the mirror and think, okay, women find me attractive and I'm a handsome man? You know, how how did you feel about yourself growing up physically? That's an interesting question. Um, I I mean, I felt as though. Um, I didn't have to, you know, like I didn't, I didn't feel necessarily insecure about it. Like sometimes if you, you know, there'd be times when I'd like feel, um, you know, you get like some like terrible breakout of skin, you know, and you just feel really insecure because you got like your face is like covered in like, you know, spots. You get like really terrible spot, right? Your chin or your forehead is like, oh no, it's a good big part. (laughs) You know, and you feel like horrible. And you, yeah, you have to go out, and you're like, oh my god, I know everyone's throbbing, and you're really feeling stupid. And 
And you sort of think that at that feeling. age that everyone's having a meeting the next day and the meeting is called, yes. let's discuss yes. Gavin Zitt, because that's yeah. how self-conscious you are. So, so, and I was very shy. So when I would have that, when I would have that feeling, I felt even more shy. Like I, I used to blush up until the age of 17, 18. If someone asked me the time, even though I thought oh. I was really tough and really cool, I still would blush if someone out of the blue asked me a question. I just, ah, so annoying, you know? <laughs> and so basically I felt, so the way that I felt when I had that terrible breakout, um, I didn't feel like that when I didn't have the breakout, I didn't feel insecure about my face. Do you know if mm. that makes sense? So it's yeah, just like, it I just felt like I didn't have, to, didn't have to worry too much. Whereas I was yeah. really good at worrying if I like knew I had to be at school and like I knew there were girls in the class and my top lip had a really big red bump on it. Like, what's <laughs> happening? What is this? You know? And I was going <laughs> up with my dad and I chasing him out the door, going, Jim, what can I do about this? Ah, oh, you'll be all right, can't notice it. And I look back in the mirror and be like a welt on my face. You really can't notice it. Of course you can. And you so had that two kind sisters of female as well didn't you? Did you have two sisters? Well, is that right, Gavin? Or you yes, I did. I did, yeah. but I grew, I did. Yeah, I do. But I, what happened is one sister was living with my mum later right. on. And then one sister left to live in Spain. Mm. So after the sort of 15, I was on my own now with my dad. Right. Okay. And so therefore things like, you know, bad skin, like he did not have time for that. He did not have time. <laughs> what was he saying? Your What's dad? your face? <laughs> Yeah, better Dean, wash that. Yeah, wash it with that. And then he'd leave. So there wasn't a lot of time spelt on the, 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 the benefits of long com. So I didn't really, I didn't overly think about it, but what I would be disingenuous to say anything less than it was, it, it was something I could, I was like, oh, that's okay. You know, mm -hmm. I haven't got any an ISN in my forehead, so I'm okay on that front. But, yes. yeah. you know, you don't really like, I mean, you know, I was busy trying to like be much better at playing football and, you know, I, yeah. you know, I wasn't, it wasn't like I, I, you know, I was just, you know, my own kind of, you know, I lost my virginity at 16, for instance. So it's not like I was out like, you know, it was all a sort of a voyage of fun and like my sister's friends, you know, getting snogged around the corner by my sister's <laughs> punk friends. That was like really exciting <laughs> moments of my adolescence, you know, really oh, quite innocent. And yeah, did you, so, so I get this impression of you, I've got you with the Gitan and I've got you with the, the Marlboro Reds, I'm thinking, in the, you know, the, in a coffee shop somewhere reading your Jean-Paul Sartre. Yeah. And then yeah. the passion for music, Gavin, when did that really kick in? Well, that really kicked in when I was uh, 12, 11, 12, because what happens in my house, uh, my aunt lived there with us as well. And so she was really exciting. It would be out all night and come back. I'd be getting up for school and she'd be coming in from a club or something. And my mom would be always like, oh, my, you know, couldn't control her sister. And then my mom and dad would be fighting about like, you know, because my, my aunt was crazy. But I thought she was the greatest person in the world. She introduced me to um, Bowie. She'd play all these records before she'd go out. And I'd sit and watch her get ready to go out for another all-nighter. Mm. And uh she was just really, really, really um, inspiring to me. And so she gave me music as a, um, uh, as a real refuge, a real sanctuary. I mean, like everyone I grew up with, it was into uh, um, Pharaohs and Gabici and Patrice Russian and uh, jazz funk and uh, doing up their brothers to do up their Cortinas. And so I was the only one that was interested in punk. I was the only one in my whole neighborhood. And um, 
but because that's who I grew up with. That's what I had to do, right? That, that was my scene. And、um, yeah. so it gave me a real sanctuary. So, and I also grew up, I, since you know that area, when you up the road from Finchley Road, on, on the Finchley Road, there used to be a shop called Manzi's, which is a record shop.、Oh, and so、oh, it's super.、Manzi's. So super, you're the first person I've ever done an interview with. It was Nancy's. <laughs> the first person I can verify.、It. And、uh, so all these things, much like、uh, Malcolm Gladwell talks about, these、uh, confluence of many different、yes. strands that go to make somebody. Like without that, without Bill Gates having the access to the、uh, computers at, at the University of Washington、yeah. through a, a childhood friend, maybe he would have gone into, you know,、uh, aeronautics, something, you know, building spaceships. Uh, and it seemed so fascinating, like growing up with the with the interesting aunt giving me music, needing music to the sanctuary away from a sort of a very depressed childhood.、Um, you know,、uh, the whole thing of、uh, and at my school at Westminster, you know, in sixth form was was brilliant. You got the coolest girls, these beautiful girls. You talk about Channing. I know the I know you, and I know your type. <laughs> And the beautiful, you know, come into our class. We had three years of like terrible. Thirty people in the class be shouted at, called by your name, <laughs> your surname. Suddenly, girls, and that's when they, that's what was traumatizing when you get the zit. Not if not your friends、yeah. sit next to a class, they don't care. But I loved it. The girls from Putney, Putney and Barnes, and like, you know, really cool. Like, really, and they'd be reading like Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, and like, you'd be like oh my、yeah. God, I'm in love, you know. Yeah. And suede, suede shoes, and just like really weird, vintage, vintage jackets. You know, it just blew my mind. And then the music thing kicked in, and you were. Did you start by playing yourself, or or songwriting, or how did? Yeah, do you remember yeah, the moment I, I, when you I, sat down and thought, right, I'm going to do this? Well, it was just when I had the opportunity to leave. Like I ran out of school. I just couldn't take it. The last couple of years, I just, I just wanted. I just was hungry for the world, you know. And、um, I had begun the, my last year at school to sort of start going out, discover clubs. And、um, I mean, now I regret it from a point of view of education and knowledge, because I think that that、uh, education and knowledge are just just most beautiful <laughs> concepts ever, and that's how we've,、uh, you know,、yeah. it's called pro, pro base. That's what we base progress on.、Um, so, but I was in such a rush, and and、um, I didn't want to leave London. I didn't want to be at the heart of it. I mean, I should have gone to St Martin's or something. So I started a band, and I thought. What am I going to do now? And I, I started a band. I met my friend Sasha Putnam, and、uh, we started a band together. And I just used to like this is my arrogance. I sometimes think about this. <laughs> I took a microphone and I would sing songs from words I'd written,、mm. like no music, just sing a song from top to bottom, and be like, "Yeah, put some chords on that." And I do like twelve of them. I was really being like, I was really always really、uh, because of my dad and seeing that example. Of like you know you get nothing for nothing you get out what you put in I just always really worked at it and even though I was really crazy and we everything we'd base on what would Jim do what would Jim Morrison do be like yeah do four more tabs that's what he'd do you know finish it <laughs> that's what Jim would do that's all eat the whole worm get two worms you know everything was what would Jim do and、um, but I still would do、uh, I'd still then be up trying to figure my way of like pushing my terrible voice through. The the grill of experience and the, the through the prism of other people's work and how can I make myself sound? What's this person doing? You know what's good about that? And learning how to be free, really like 
learning how to like take off all the layers of artifice and defense mechanism that I'd built up mm. through the years of self-preservation. Cause I, I didn't take it like my, it destroyed my sister. That, my parents, your, your, your just the whole, there are beginning. Yeah. That sort of, yeah. that thing, you know, like she's amazing, my sister, but you know, it was very taxing for her. For me, I found it liberating and wild that the adults could do this and like the world was a cold mean place mm. but it gave me a it gave me a um like a, a backbone and a steel i mean you might even mm. even if you get you're vulnerable and you find yourself i never wanted oh woe is me and like i need help i was like nah it's just like everyone's like everyone's out for themselves really and you just got to find your happiness and find your 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 modes to survive because it really is Darwinism at its finest, and so I'd sing those songs into my into into my dad's hi-fi onto a cassette. Be like, Aww. give these poor my poor band, like you know, here's the here's our first record. You know, twelve songs. You know, probably one note, probably about the range of three <laughs> notes within like twelve songs. You know, and just learn that the the way the only way of which is by diving into it, and just uh, that was it. And so I can't believe I still get to do this. You said something which I really liked, and apologies if I'm misquoting, because I appreciate it goes on, so correct me if this is wrong, but you said words to the effect of, I believe great singers become great singers. And um, I hope you said that, because I really found that interesting. What do you mean by that? Yeah, um, I mean that, that uh, first off, it's, the, the, it's twofold. First off, is that lovely fr uh, quote by David Byrne, who says, uh, the better someone sings, the less he believes them. And... Um, Oh, I so love this is that. An, yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? There's a the kind of a there's a there's a professionalism to sing to singing that goes along with the talent shows where you go, wow, that's an amazing set of pipes, and then you know mm -hmm. and you go, wow, look at those runs, that's really impressive, and then um, but 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 music and art that I care about is not about being impressive, except in a in a way that uh, triggers something in people. That's what's impressive, mm -hmm. and so you you. I mean, for me, I really did it the right way, which is I absolutely began terribly. I was terrible, <laughs> had no voice, had really no right to have a voice. It was just like a really unusual shape. I just know what it was. It was like this monolith, like a boot. I don't know what to do, like a mountain, like a rock. And it wasn't <laughs> through the years shaped with my aesthetic, the words, and also actually weirdly, because it sounds so weird because it's so obvious how it sounds like mm. how to work with it so it sounds right now it's just like second nature to me it's as natural as my speaking voice i mean i love this other phrase banksy said uh, it's it's amazing how many uh, artists are prepared to suffer for their work but so few are prepared to learn how to draw and uh, i do think you should know how to draw before you're an artist so yeah. i think they go they go hand in hand and then you just have to be an interesting enough person that you can convey an idea that for whatever reason, and the reason is irrelevant, it's just the fact it does, there's a connection. That's all, you know? Yeah, that's so interesting. And do you think when, you know, Bush, obviously you had a name change and you sort of, did you, when was the first moment when you started realizing, okay, we, we're going to be pretty successful here? Um, well, it wasn't, you know, I went back to work after we made the first record, 16 Stone we made in uh, Shepherd's Bush, and then I thought we we're going to, you know, world domination. And then, no, it was 11, 
<laughs> dentist surgeries along opposite Miss Selfridge. And I just paint them in Magnolia because the deal <laughs> fell through and I was in this Kafka nightmare and I was literally 11 massive offices, really oh. big units, 11 of them. So I was just like, I, I wanted to kill myself. And then when it went to the radio here, they said, are you your songs on the radio is on K-Rock, which is a massive radio, very um, sort of influential radio in America station mm. here in LA. And that's what kickstarted our career. So it wasn't that moment because I didn't really know what they meant. It was when we came out on tour um, later that year. It could have been February of, of 95. Mm. And um, we played our first show at CBGB's, which was the place where oh, television, yeah, course, Blondie, yeah. the Ramones, yeah, Lou Reed, every, every, it's so legendary. But yeah. it used to be this legendary punk club. Yeah. And uh, we played there. And we, you know, I'd, I'd done, I was you know, decent, decent in Camden. Do you know what I mean? I played the pubs and did a couple of shows and all that nonsense. But when we walked into that, that club, it was so packed. And all I remember was like the hippest, you know, like everyone you want, if you threw your, your, your best life party, do you know what I mean? Everyone were like artists from Brooklyn, you know, it's like yes. beautiful tattooed girls, <laughs> beautiful girls, rocker dudes, everyone you want to hang out with and yet you haven't met yet, you know, cause I just started, you know? And I was like, I couldn't get to the stage. There's so many people. And that's yeah. when I was like, wow. And then that's when that from that night, we just stayed on tour for three years and went mm. from clubs to theaters to arenas and within a year and a half. And so it was just the most incredible incendiary rise. And mm. every week it just was climbing the charts and 50,000 records a week. And just, you couldn't believe what was happening. So it was like that and uh, MTV was happening. So our videos all over MTV. That's when I was super famous. That's when yeah. I was Justin Bieber. I, you know, I was Justin Bieber. I was, that was it. There was like, you know, so fun. Every hotel, you know, hundreds of people outside the hotels, all that nonsense, all that stuff. Did you, you can't... Did it, was it enjoyable, Gavin? Did it feel overwhelming yeah, at any point? Did you feel? Yes, it was, it was overwhelming at certain points, but also disingenuous to be, there's one point where I was struggling and I was really lost. And I remember seeing this doctor, I was in a suite of the Four Seasons, and I was like, starting to having panic attacks. I'd been on a flight, just coming from, uh, from uh, Japan, and I really felt that, um, I just felt overwhelmed and really like broken and just done in and spread so thin. I hadn't been home in three years, and I'd broken up with my long-term girlfriend. I just, it was just before I was meeting Gwen. And before I was falling in love and I was like, I just was lost because nobody could prepare you for that. And I was lost. I couldn't leave the hotel. It was really madness. And I remember this uh, doctor came to the hotel to see me and I just was like, I just wanted to get drugs really. Because we were traveling and like, oh, I'm so yeah. strung out, doc, help me. Yeah. He says to me, look, he goes to me, I'll tell you, I play in a jazz band. Uh, once a week around the corner from my house in Brooklyn. And on, so on a good night, we have about 15 or 20 people come and see us. Just here's my number, here's my cell phone. And if you ever feel like swapping places, uh, just give me a call. <laughs> so I shut up. I was like, oh, shut up, you like dumb cliche. Just enjoy your life. So I just ordered more room service and like, you know, got some, I don't know, some vodka and some caviar. Do you know what I, I would like, say about that doctor? He sounds very much like what Mr. Roster, Dr. Rosterhill would have said to you. Yeah. From what I know yeah, of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wonder yeah. if that's why you responded, because it felt like, yeah, I, I understand yeah. what you're saying to me. I, I can do yeah. this. 
you know. <laughs> yes. I, 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 so I gently, I gently put the, put the dummy back into the cot, put the pacifier, <laughs> picked it up gently, wiped it. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Put it away in a drawer. And uh, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Just like got on with it after that. Just was yeah. like, just enjoyed it. I mean, I really do try and enjoy it. I think life is really um, to be enjoyed. And now at the point I'm in uh, now at my life, you know, I have to really accept that if I had 20 amazing summers left where I'm before I'm a burden, it'd be incredible. It's just it's so important um, to live now and just to enjoy and relish every moment because we all know that around every corner there's a little bit of trouble, a little bit of a challenge, and a little bit of a dampener on your day, no matter who you are and what you do. And I, by the way, you see people with like all these unbelievable wealth, billionaires and mm. uh, millionaires with this poor sting steve bing 55 years old threw himself off a building it's like if you're born a billionaire what have you you could never be depressed i would think i'd be happy the whole time i'd be like i've only met one rich person who's the happiest guy i've met all the other richer people i've ever met are so they have this sort of scorn and worry about them they, they don't they're not rich enough mm. so that it's really like a weird thing where I, I do realize now that even though I may think that I live this eternal Peter Pan life, the truth is, is the experience that I'm bringing to it inadvertently without thinking, but just by living and breathing every day and taking up space on the planet is that it really comes down to uh, your perspective on every single thing that happens and how you deal with it. And it's just this, the only regret should be the things you haven't done and the, the way you don't live your life to the fullest. Mm. I, I agree with that. It's very Buddhist. And, and I, I mean, I like that notion because there's a phrase I learned, everyone is guilty, no one is to blame. And I say that to myself every day. Yes. Can... And I love you say that because the reason why I called the record the kingdom was because I imagined this place free of self-righteous, judgmental people. And I mm. thought if you could just find a sort of a, a, a space like that, that's the everything that's a... I mean, I, I, I love that, that phrase um, about forgiveness and there is mm. no blame. And mm. things are, you know, like you just find yourself exactly, I mean, I, I, I'm not um, a Buddhist because I, I, my whole life is spent craving, just nonstop craving. And uh, it's our downfall, right? But it, I'm a complete <laughs> craver. Uh, but I do really connect myself to so much of that common sense. Mm. And so that's what that's what that whole thing of, you know, being around people and the two specific people that just were I was around that I had to have dealings with. Mm. I just was like, oh, you're so shamefully self-righteous. It's like I want to put and bite my fingers <laughs> off, you know, like, <laughs> can you hear yourself, you know? And it's really and it's interesting. so blamey and judgmental. Yeah. And when you and actually, when you when you let go of that, when, when, when you don't know that stuff, or we rather just not finish that point mm. is that you makes you a better person because you're freer like i actually don't i really don't hate anyone because it's such a like hating someone is the same thing as blaming someone mm. it's mm. like you're attaching an emotion that's self that that's self-defeating and drags you down it's like jealousy you know jealousy yeah. is just like it's such a dumb emotion because the person you're jealous of cannot feel what you're feeling you're just hurting yourself you're denigrating yourself you're elevating them probably further than they should go and you're draining your own battery and um so when you can identify those those behaviors that are so self um 
emoliating, self-destructive. Yeah. That you just, It's such a much easier, lighter life when you don't um, carry those burdens. Tell me about the album and the process and, you know, sort of the, the conceiving it all and recording it all. Well, I just had been on tour. I usually, I seem to make records once every three years. So that's when they come out. I'm making them all the time. Mm. But they, every three years, they're, they're ready. Mm. Um, every three years. Um, it's a very, I wanted to make a record that was super standalone. And, mm. you know, basically you'd expect, or I'd be totally forgiven for making a really lackluster, mid-tempo, <laughs> acoustic-based self-satisfied disconnected <laughs> record possibly about like my time in sequoia <laughs> forest or, or the movement of the ocean just on the tip of mexico you know it really got me and instead instead i feel like we made a really vital record connected to the heartbeat of 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 where it's at flowers on a grave is the isolation song the loneliness song the mm. kingdom which is a, a like comical rock song to to lift up mm. the um to the peaceful protests you know i don't i'm not into the looting stuff so the peaceful protest and the uprising and the defense of the racial injustice uh here in america and of course around the world mm. uh you know it just feels like wow how did we how did we write a record that if you want to be on your surfboard listening to rock music this is the track to play it to you know yeah. and uh so it feels really connected and really vital so i love the idea of doing everything wrong i love the yeah. idea of being from england and doing a rock band when Britpop was the biggest thing going on and we do a rock yeah. band and i thought oh here's the end of my commercial life oh well before i die i'm gonna make a band do a band i love and i yeah. did bush and uh I did it all wrong and then it went all right and, and I should still shouldn't be doing it now. You know, I shouldn't be everything. I shouldn't be on paper doing everything. And I love that because all those laws, and all those shoulds, the list of shoulds, who wrote those? I, I mean, know. no one should go to Westminster and have this life. This is not the life. Me and Shane McGowan. <laughs> well, also, it's me it's and interesting. Shane McGowan. He's the it's only other guy that went to Westminster, you know. Did he, he didn't go to Westminster. Yeah. Did, yeah. did he really? Shane McGowan. Yeah. But yeah. isn't that interesting? That tells you a lot, doesn't it? I look at myself then and I think that was a judgment on my part, you know, because I look at it and think, why did you go to Westminster? And I'm making an assumption about who would have gone there. But yeah. that's fascinating. Uh, and me too. I'm super mm. judgmental about the place. Yeah. I judge it, I judge it every day. <laughs> First three years, I wasted my time. When I went back, um, many years after I left, 10, 15 years after I left, I couldn't believe how fancy it was. And it was all like the establishment. It was the establishment. Mm. But it wasn't, you know, and with the, with the big difference that it wasn't the kind of lumbering, um, entitled establishment. And it's funny, isn't it? Because at first, when you're young and growing up, I was so insecure about going to, you go to public school. And if you're English, that's the end of it. I used to walk around Hyde Park thinking, it's the end of me. I've got no future. <laughs> Even if I think of a tune. Even if I write a song, everyone's going to hate me forever. And they kind of did. They kind of did for it as well. Don't do you get me think wrong. they did? did? Well, slightly. It, it, it definitely played into reasons to hate me. You know, record sales, you know, didn't get hit with the ugly stick and went to Westminster. <laughs> oh, yeah, if you're an NME, that's the end. It's like, that's like, it's enough to kill you. Hang drawn core to that fucker. Yeah, we're going yeah. to bleed him dry. You know, the, the NME, Melody Maker even sounds back in the day when when i was a kid 
they were just like everything that I based my life off of. So mm. when we came out and we got so beaten up by the enemy, I was like, I'm getting smacked <laughs> around here. You've got three yeah. kids, haven't you? And you're, yeah, well, you're, you're yeah. got a hands-on dad. Well, you've got four in total because you found four out you were dad later in life, which yeah. I love as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and did Wait, you... Yeah, um... I've got beautiful Daisy. So Daisy I'm really close with, but she's obviously fully grown and fully perfect. So I'm just there as a good sounding board. And we have a wonderful relationship, but I have uh, the three boys that live with me half the time mm. um, that are really... I don't know how to do it. I didn't read any books. So when I, and I'm really lucky with my life that I can really um, um, fashion it around them. And so when I have them, I really work less. If I'm not touring, I work around them. And I'm, you know, I don't go out when I'm with them and I'm just hang out with them all the time. And so it's, it's really close and, and healthy and sweet. And uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. I think that there are too many people in the world. And if you're going to breed, the least you can do is make them good people. <laughs> So it's like the ultimate <laughs> ultimate bad manners is to have kids and just leave them to be feral kids that yeah. you know have no input like a bit like I was really I was sort of feral but under the watchful <laughs> eye of my dad who's really calm so I had this yeah. like ability to be a bit of both and always secured by the fact of that I just wanted him to like me so much that I never was too loud too mm. much you know and uh, yeah. it was it, you know whatever so and we and with he, your kids, do you are you keen to sort of are they quite British or American, and are you keen to sort of introduce them to British culture and you know, or is that something? Well, we, that, did, we yeah, we have a really really English. Uh, I call it European, even though we're obviously out of Europe now. I suppose we're not European, but no. I give them I give them that lifestyle of where we sit and eat together, we break bread together every night, every you know whatever lunch you can mess around wherever, but. Um, take a bit of food here and there but i have this cultural thing with them where we sit down to eat every single night and that creates a bond and mm. uh, a culture you know I'm, I'm obsessed with them reading books and teaching them stuff and showing them things so therefore i make my kids think about things everything you know is wrong everything you know think about things all these disinformation books and try to get them to read catching the rye but the 14 year olds like, no they told me not reading until high school i was like perfect you'll know it really well what's your problem read it you know i'm bored i said well look there's so many things you don't know like read this book the people have like laying the ground for us to be more interesting, and uh, so that are kind you, of stuff. Are you hot that, on manners, Gavin? I imagine you being quite hot on that kind of stuff. We go to a restaurant, and it, there's an old like bus boy man, you know, like the old older guy, you know, pouring mm. water. If they don't look him in the eye and thank him, we, they get like the spitting through the side of the mouth like that. <laughs> Fuck, you look, you know what I mean? That's the only time I get really. So what I do find is that when they go and spend time with other people, they're mm. flawless, their manners. Because my mom, it's like they kind of elbows on the table. They got to look, shake people's hands, right? Looking people in the eye, thank you, please, all that stuff. Like even though I'm super art, like that stuff. How they? Because I say if they if they're funny and they're polite, they'll go far. That's what I tell them. Mm, mm. That's all you got to be: funny and polite, and then everyone's gonna love you. Your life will be easier. Don't be either of those two and life is going to be much harder for you than it should be. Even when I got divorced, there was obviously I could have considered right away to move back to London mm. and to not be a, you know what I mean? Be more of a deadbeat, more of a standard dad. And I had a girlfriend <laughs> at the time who couldn't believe it. She's like, oh, none of my friends, none of the fathers, you know, just, just 
don't you know don't have your kids all the time we'll live in london we can live in london and she's really beautiful and i was like thinking i said to yeah and you're really crazy but i do love you so i will visit you in a mental hospital no i'm never <laughs> leaving my kids <laughs> like you idiot so i never thought of that like i think when you we have them i mean mm. i just that's it you know and i have this really weird life because i have two lives like it's a um my selfish life where I can talk about myself and uh, go on tour and sing my songs, or I can be here at the house and there's no one here, or I'm with them like the last two weeks where I get up at 6.30 with them and with them till 10.30 at night. And mm -hmm. I go out a little bit, I want, in two weeks I went for one dinner and I got a call halfway through dinner from my 14 year old, dad, what time are you coming back? And shall I put the jacuzzi on? I was like, <laughs> back a little bit put it on so we had a, like i came back at 10 and we're like in the sat in the jacuzzi with my 14 year old for an hour and then the, the 11 year the six year old leans out over the balcony above and he goes can you come put me down i was like yeah sure so i go and put him down then we wake up in the morning and i forgot to put the jacuzzi off so i get in the jacuzzi at 7 a.m till 8 uh, with a with a <laughs> six-year-old and then we're shooting the breeze in the in the jacuzzi there and just sitting listening to your kids talking and letting them talk and giving them the space to be heard and talk about anything they want and be creative. It's just amazing when you let kids, they're comfortable and relaxed and they're talking. It's just like, it's magic. What I like is you're now reached a stage uh, when you're getting calls from someone asking you to join them in a jacuzzi. It would have once been the Playboy Mansion back in the uh, 90s. Now yeah. it's your 14 year old saying, <laughs> hurry back, the water's getting cold. Um, yeah. But do you yeah. think as well with your kids, that's interesting, in terms of fame, which is a difficult thing to handle but, uh, by any stretch of the imagination, and I think your fame is tough as well for all sorts of reasons because it's complicated and people think of you in certain ways. You know, they apply a truck, he's this, he's that, you know, and I think. Do you think with your kids that's something you've been conscious of? Is Because it must be weird when your kids turn around to you and say, you're on telly, you're on the poster, you're on, you know. Do, is that something you've navigated? Well, we go, been... we, yeah, it's been it's been really tricky. Um, sometimes we'll be at the supermarket and, uh, you know, you'd be on the cover of a gossip magazine or a picture in a gossip magazine or, you know, his mum's on the cover getting married and we're like standing with a shopping and I'm like, should I stand in front of it or, you know, what should I yeah. cover? It's just sort of, uh, you know, I mean, the most important thing I think is to have a sort of an ability to, it's very English, which is to just, you know, compartmentalize things and, and never take yourself so seriously. And, you know, I'm just so conscious that there's other people that are so much bigger stars and bigger fame and bigger selection of photographers. Sometimes it's annoying because if I go for lunch with someone or meet up with anyone, I'm dating them and I'm, I'm with them and you know and the danger of that of course is often true and so you're like just it's just annoying because you're just like oh man i don't know what this is i'm just finding out if i want to go meet them again don't sort of say i'm you know i don't know just it's it, somehow it's really invasive it's like hold on i didn't say that yet you know and he really likes her i didn't say that but the main thing is is that with all through that you know and all the terrible stuff I just thought it was just, I could never, I would never talk about my private life per se, all my, you know, deepest stuff. I mm. talk with my kids about it all, but I, I've never, I would never say anything derogatory about their mother. Mm. I would never criticize her. She gave me three children. Mm. No matter what my perspective is, I would never do that. It just it seems, she gave birth to three amazing kids and any, 
I think she has a lot of trouble with me, um, but that's her own trouble. It's not my trouble. Mm. You yeah, know, I, so I, I, I just I, I just look at it through my kids. I'll tell you another way of looking at it is people always say to me when I first had kids, the ones I knew about, as you said. Um, <laughs> I didn't put it like that, you... Gavin. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It's my, my turn of phrase for you. Uh, they go, uh, you know, do you write any songs? You write any songs about your kids? And it's like, I think Daisy and I think of my boys in the same way. No, they just inspire you to be better because I want Daisy uh, Kingston. I want them to be their friends, play their dad's new record and not be embarrassed. I want them to be like, wow, this is wild. You know, check this out. And so all they did is they raised the bar for your uh, the quality of everything that you do much in the same way that the reason I don't I don't care about being photographed with a beautiful friend or a beautiful girl that I'm seeing or whatever I what, what do I care there's corona people are dying it's a fucking mm. picture who gives a shit so I don't care about that what I care about and I really don't like it is in my heart things when it happens because I don't want my kids to get the example that I'm just like you know it's a bit too relaxed mm. I want my kids to know that it's like that, you know, they say to me, why didn't you get a girlfriend? It's, it's not like I don't have a, you know, see, you know, date in between that I'm with them. But what I don't do is I, I bring, brought one girl around them in five years. And uh, that was a girl I had for two years. And the rest of them sort of dating and getting to know someone or sp even spending time with someone. And that's a big, big step before I introduce them to my kids because I still want to be so, you know, so frivolous, frivolous for them. Right. Because it, it's just not a good example. They've got to see solid on that front. And uh, mm. that's why I don't really like that intrusion. Outside of that, isn't it my job to be, you know, to have, you know, some pictures with someone who's a beautiful girl? It's not the end of the world. I do think with Daisy Lowe, who's your daughter, and you didn't find out until, I guess she was 14, wasn't she? And you were like, oh, okay, I've got a kid. That's something that takes time. And that must have been a big shock. But to get to that place is brilliant. Yeah, um, it is really good because, you know, she really was really in need of the stability of her mm. father and mm. the person that she thought her father turned out not be and turned out to be quite a difficult person in her life. Mm, mm. And, um, you know, she's been on her own journey. And I think that to have found me and me found her and for us to be effectively reunited, you know, their daughters love their dads, you know, really a lot. So we have an intrinsic bond that is... You know, I don't have that with my three boys. It's a different thing, mm. and obviously she's an adult. So we have a beautiful, beautiful connection that's really nice. In fact, if it wasn't for Corona, we'd be on holiday right now in Sardinia. We'd be doing this interview from Sardinia. And then there'd be pictures of you in the paper saying, Gavin Rostell pictured with stunning brunette. Someone would say, no, it's his daughter, you idiot. And they'd be, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually was estranged from my dad and it was difficult. Similar thing, he left when I was young, you know, a bit like your mum. And I just sort of reunited with him when he on his deathbed, really. But I look at what you've oh. done and I think, yeah, but I think that's amazing because your mum left you. And again, none of us are guilty. None of us are guilty. Yeah. No one is to no, blame. No. Everyone is yeah. guilty. But you've done, I think your legacy is that you've righted that act somehow because you've come into Daisy's life and given her a dad. That's how I see it. Right. And, nice. um, Thank you so much. Is your, and is I have a really beautiful, beautiful relationship with my mum. Really, really, really close. And, uh, you know, um, I speak to her two, three times a week, you know, ring her all the time and keep an eye on her. And Corona's been really hard for her. Luckily, I came yeah. back just before um, in March. I was in London last time. And, uh, no, you know, she's 
she's amazing and i never ever ever harbored any grudges or blame or i just thought it was like okay thanks i was like, yeah. it was like almost like being catapulted it was being you know it was being catapulted into adult life yes. so whilst there was teething problems i just got like i really took it like oh that happens people just aren't happy and in fact the last two years of her living with us mm. uh, she was so miserable that it that it was miserable and so when mm. she left even though it was awful suddenly there was none of that tension and that that, that that losing that tension was like a really uh was a powerful powerful thing but it just uh had all the other side of it um and it's probably you know so it makes you i don't know we need to finish by asking quickly about Chewy, because Chewy is the star of this before we go. Um, of course, yeah. What are Chewy's plans? Do you spoil Chewy, Gavin? I mean, do you cook for Chewy and puree food? And what is, what is your dog parenting style like? Um, it's pretty, I'm, I'm a feeder. I am a feeder. So <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't puree. He still has teeth, so I don't puree anything. But I definitely chop it within the good bite-sized pieces. But I usually... Uh, you can buy these like rotisserie chicken from the supermarket, and you so can, Gavin. Most people buy them for humans. But anyway, carry on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but the thing is, is that you can, go you can buy that caviar stuff from Fortnum and Mason. <laughs> no, no, oh my, my God, no. I mean, um, I mean, oh. I put it on sandwiches for the kids. The kids eat it. I don't eat that. <laughs> I don't eat that much meat. I stop backpedalling, Rossdale. No, I know. You, I stop backpedalling. So, Chewy, is Chewy allowed on the bed, by the way? Oh, yeah, of course. He's going to get washed today, actually. It reminds me. But, yeah, he's totally allowed on the bed. Just basically allowed everywhere, but all within reason and all within reason, reasonable hygiene as well. So, I like a nice, you know, a clean Chewy gets close on the bed, but he doesn't, he's not like uh, sitting around, you know, desperate to be. He kind of has an independence and wants his own space as well, you know. Oh, well, I'm, I'm imagining you and Chewy having a night. You've done your walk now, so you're all set up for the day. Yeah, I'm going to go train now. I'm going to play tennis now in the heat and it's nice and hot. So, I'm going to go and play tennis um, up in the deep valley. Oh, don't make us jealous. I'm stuck in indoors with my smelly shih tzu. Oh. <laughs> well, give him a bath. I... <laughs> I've loved talking to you. You've been brilliant. And I really love the look of Chewy. And I'll continue to stalk Chewy on social media. Please do. And loads of luck with the album. And I don't think you'll need it because I think it's brilliant. Oh, thanks so much. I really appreciate that. Bye, Raymond. <laughs> I really hope you enjoyed listening to that and do remember to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes.